Hi, I'm Laura Boswell. And I'm Peter Keegan. And as always, we have the talented Mr B on sound. Welcome to our weekly episode of Ask an Artist, the podcast where we help you to make the leap and become a working artist. Every week we explore a different topic from the deeply practical to the enjoyably creative with plenty of down-to-earth advice to put you on the road to making a living from your art. Well, it's the episode where we hand the show over to you. That's right, you, our listeners, for your listener questions. And on the list this week, we have an unusual question about copyright, a question about record keeping, and a listener with a lovely idea for a local pub with life drawing alongside the craft beers. Sounds Ooh. lovely. Take me You there, can right sign now. me up for that straight away. <laughs> All right, Laura, let's, let's start off with the first question. It's a big one, so you go ahead. Okay, so this is a question from an anonymous source, and they say, I have a question about a copyright issue that came up when I published my own website. I'd been painting with a group for about eight years under the guidance of an artist tutor in their house. The tutor was a friend of a friend, and we used to go there and set up still lives and all paint together as a group. Our tutor always encouraged us to put our work out there and to exhibit and create a website. So I was surprised when she contacted me after seeing my paintings online, saying that I should have referenced her on my site as those setups were her copyright and she was upset I hadn't done it. I changed the text and mentioned her in the group, but I still don't feel that was necessary as we were paying for the lessons and I wasn't copying her finished works. We all had an input into arranging what was painted albeit using her pieces for still life as the lessons were in her house. Was she right to ask for this? So, Peter, you go first. Fascinating question. There's a lot there, Mm. isn't there? A lot there to to sort of unpick. So, first of all, this is, I think this is an occurrence that happens a lot around the country, around the world, where people are getting together in groups uh, and painting together under the guidance of an artist and a tutor. And I've done this, I know you have as well, where you set themes and topics and ideas, and sometimes we provide reference material uh, for people to work with. But I think it's really important that all this comes under the guise of a lesson. This is people mm. learning, but also coming together for, for social kind of interaction as well. So when this artist put their work on their website, should they have credited the artist and the tutor? Well, I don't think she needed to because what is she taking what's the copyright infringement now correct me if i'm wrong i think copyright can only be infringed if you're stealing something that they have produced themselves they are the author of an artwork for example you can't be the copyright of an arrangement of a still life can you i don't think you can no you can't if the still life consisted of paintings this artist had painted, Mm -hmm. then maybe. But it would still be a bit of a tricky ground because this artist has let them into her house. Mm -hmm. They've all discussed the setting up a still life. They've all had a hand in it. Now, the writer is quite clear that these were not works of art they were painting. They were presumably things like fruit and flowers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's no copyright in that. I think it's a very odd thing to say. And... I can't see any reason why the artist teacher should have been referenced. Now, in the art world, there's a lot of uh, networking and relationships. And you'll often find that artists will reference each other or they'll say, you know, thanks to my friend, whoever, who's Mm -hmm. helped me to do this. And there's a lot of goodwill around. But it seems to me that if you are having a lesson and you've handed over your money and you've paid for that, Mm. that is the transaction. I don't think you then have any moral obligation. Mm. If she had 
I don't know, studied for free for several months and there had been a great sort of input from the artist, then yeah, maybe morally mm. it would have been nice. So I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the tutor here. Right. So, you know, if I've, you know, I've taken a group of artists and I've taught them the way to paint and to draw and I've mm. set something up, I'm proud of hopefully what they've produced and mm-hmm. I can see them flourishing. I mean, mm-hmm. the, clearly the artist is so proud of what they've done that they wish to put it on their website, which I think mm-hmm. is a wonderful thing. But I don't think... That, that that tutor has the right of any ownership on that work no. or any kind of credibility. Yes, they showed them the way, they opened the door for them, but no way should the artist sort of, you know, constantly praise and have public thanks uh, to that tutor. No, and certainly not in a kind of credible way of, 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 of stating that the artwork in some way still belongs to the tutor because it really does not. Absolutely, it doesn't. I mean, I I taught some printmakers once that were, it, they were first time they'd ever printed. They loved it. They got chatting in the lesson. They formed a little group because they all lived locally to each other. And that group I know has gone on to have little shows and now they exhibit together. And I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. But at no stage would I expect them to say, oh, and all of this is due to mm. Laura Boswell. Because, you know, yes, I, I might have given them the gentle push to get them started, mm. but that's that's the end of it. So, I think, no, I think that, that she should not have had to reference this lady on her website. And I think it's sort of a way that if you are an artist and you teach, that there is this sort of... This, there is this rule that you are making sort of mini versions of yourself or you're certainly inspiring people to do things in the way that you're guiding them. But they need, they will fledge and they will fly the nest and you have no control over that. They may credit you with directly with the work that they are doing. You may see it as examples of their work. Um, you know, oh, this, this brings up the topic of plagiarism as well. You know, just if you're teaching a method and a style and someone continues to using it, you cannot accuse them of plagiarism because you've taught them to use it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And what is plagiarism in art anyway? You know, it's we're all taking inspiration from other pieces. You can't own a style or a way of manipulating no. paint or ink or a tool or material. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you are an artist that teaches skills and t- tips and techniques, be prepared that people will utilise it, take you forward. But that is okay. You shouldn't be threatened by that. If anything, as you say, Laura, you should be incredibly proud that they're mm. flying independently without you sort of, uh, you know, looking after them. And I know both you and I, we have taught many students over the years and we know some of them are incredibly successful artists, some are probably even more successful than we are and mm. doing incredibly well. And that feels wonderful to be part of their artistic journey to get them where they are today. So I think we've fairly comprehensively said that she was quite right to feel uncomfortable about it and there was no reason really for this artist teacher to demand the mention. So now that we've dealt with that, let's get on to the pub. Let's all go down the pub and maybe you'd like to read this one, Peter. Absolutely, always happy to go down the pub. Um, So this comes from Barbara and Barbara says, I paint a lot, but many from photos and I have a craving for live models. Barbara, I know exactly what you're saying, don't we all? Um, I'll be joining some classes hopefully this autumn, but, and this is my question, some time ago I came across the idea of an informal group of people gathering in the pub, uh, parking their partners at the bar and drawing the designated model. Any tips how to find such groups or even start one? I tried the search online, but no luck. So this is an artist that's in a community and she's not feeling that she's involved in any community yet. So she wants to build her own. And I think that's wonderful. I think that this is where ideas and groups sort of start uh, to come about. Um, And I think it's completely possible. If it doesn't exist, 
you should build it and you should make it yourself because inevitably I think there'll be plenty of people out there that would wish to uh, join you as well. If Particularly if you live in a, a built-up area or in a city, there'll be plenty of people around. Now, I do know there are groups out there exist. And I think that if you go on um, some websites, there's Gumtree and there's Meetup, which is very good. And people kind of set up these groups to do that. Of course, that's had a little bit of, uh, of a dent at the moment because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But I do know that there are groups out there existing. So first of all, do some really kind of good searching. But if you can't find it, I think there's no harm in kind of building it yourself. And you know, if you build it, they will come. That's my I mean, I believe in that enormously. I totally agree with you. I think also the other things that are worth looking at is to see if your local council or area uh, organisations have any help or information about either groups that exist Mm -hmm. or help with forming groups. Now, the other thing is the pub, because I know that pub landlords are quite often keen to diversify and pull people in Mm. and are up for new ideas. So if I couldn't find a group, my first thing to think about would be to find a likely pub and see if I could engage with whoever was running that and organise it. And the other thing I'd be looking at is to see if there was any funding about Okay, because potentially there, there there are little pockets of funding. It's it's quite interesting. If I I think we tend to think of the arts council when we tend to think mm. of funding, but local councils and local groups and some arts organisations offer you know not huge amounts of money, but little startups to things like this. Mm. So it's always worth doing a bit of research for that as well, because you might need money for doing for for sort of reaching out to people, doing a website, stuff yeah. like that. So I'd look into the funding. I mean, I think it is a genius idea. I think it sounds great. I think yeah. the other way I'd look at it as well is actually kind of go directly to uh, existing artists and communities. So if you are in an area where there is an existing art group, whether it's mm. sort of an elected membership or whether it's for the amateurs, I would sort of recommend approaching them. And if you're not already a member of that group, I would recommend becoming it and then see if that's something a, a, a part of the um, I was going to say curriculum not the curriculum mm. but the activities annually that's something that, mm. that members of that group would like to uh, join in with I think that would be a very kind of good place to start of course the ones on the internet we have things like social media and Facebook groups and Instagram and actually I think if you kind of f- uh, set up a group on something like uh, Facebook which is very very good sort of analytics and marketing kind of inbuilt into all of it a lot of it goes way over our heads but there is a lot of information advice that can support people who wish to set this up you could set up a group and mm-hmm. very very quickly that the ball will start rolling and snowball uh, to enormous size to get people kind of getting together but I think it's wonderful I think it's really nice that kind of people want to get together and be artistic together because it is a bit of a lonesome pursuit sometimes being an artist and actually sort of sketching in company is I think uh, you know a really nice way to chew the cud and sort of do what you and I are doing Laura you know we meet up occasionally and have a chat so yeah I I agree and the the one other thing that I would say about it is that I might look at other groups who have a similar model Mm. not to do with life drawing maybe but there are um, I'm just trying to think what they're called the sort of gorilla knitters and things where they have or the chat cafes things like that have a look at those models yes and see how they've worked because they're they're sort of grassroots things that have been enormously successful Mm. so have a look for some ideas and hints and tips from that as well but good good luck with that and we'll be along to enjoy a pint (laughs) absolutely (laughs) once you get it started well whilst we uh, think about that pint let's uh, pause for a moment to splash a bit of color into the podcast So, Peter, I hear you're keeping things simple this week. I am. I'm keeping it very simple because I'd like to introduce you to a very simple colour. Well... 
technically speaking, it's not really a colour at all, as I'd like to talk about white. Now, I know what you're thinking, everyone. He's going to be talking about titanium white, but no, no, it's not titanium white. Zinc white? Nope not even foundation white. Now, the white I'm going to tell you about today is Michael Harding's warm white lead alternative. It's a bit of a mouthful, warm white lead alternative. And it really is a special and rather clever colour, as Michael Harding has purposely invented this colour to match the qualities of traditional lead white paint without any of the dangerous toxic properties. You see, original lead white was the white of choice for centuries, famed for its slightly warm temperature and handling and sought after by the masters Rembrandt, Titian, Vermeers and many others. It did, however, come with a toxic cost and if used in the wrong way could have some disastrous results. Well, fast forward a couple of centuries and along comes Mr. Michael Harding, who, so fascinated by the quality of original lead white, not only makes his own version of lead white, which Laura and I have actually seen at his colour mill, but he's also made a completely safe warm white lead alternative, a perfect solution for the UK and EU artists who want a lead-like paint without the lead content, which is banned unless you have a restorer's license in the UK. His warm lead white alternative is a very strong opaque paint that has outstanding brushing qualities, mixes well with every colour on the artist's palette and has that slightly magical warm quality to it that those past masters revered. So if you would like to find out about Michael Harding's handmade paints, the fantastic colour range, including this amazing white, and a wealth of useful information about working with Michael's paints, mediums and more, visit his website at michaelharding.co.uk. And now we've had our colour fix, let's return to our last question. And Laura, this one is all about sort of being organised, which I'm hopeless at. So I wonder if you could do the honours on this one. Oh, thank you, Peter. So this comes from Derek. And Derek asks, I wonder if you have any advice on keeping track of the art that I make. I have paintings and some original prints and I'm starting to take part in fairs. I have some work in a local pub and I've sold a few. Does it even matter with original paintings if once they're sold, they're gone? Ooh, right. So original paintings, I'm going to throw that to you, Peter. Does it matter if you keep a record of what you've done and when and stuff like that? Does it matter? I don't think it matters, but I think it helps. I personally want to know where the work has gone. And I like to, I mean, partly for for financial reasons, I want to know where things have gone and how much it's raised and so on. So I do like to keep a record and it's nothing particularly impressive. It's either thing on a um, uh, either Microsoft Word document or Excel spreadsheet that just sort of lists what's gone. Um, If I can, rarely I'll try and link it up to a photograph, a digital image that I've taken on a camera on my phone so I can kind of, you know, use it as as a reminder. So I do like to kind of track... Uh, what I do, but inevitably things do get lost sometimes in, in flurries of sales, or if I'm sort of you know selling multiple pieces, things will get slightly lost. So I don't think it necessarily matters, but it depends how organized and how professional you kind of wish to sort of to, to be in it. Mm. Now, as a printmaker, which involves additional prints, I imagine mm. you need to be incredibly organized and aware that how many prints you have and, and which editions are where in which galleries. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. It is a sort of different ball game if you're a printmaker because you are, as you say, you're producing multiples of each mm. image. And it is important in that case. Um, it doesn't have to be anything very complicated. I mean, these days I do it all on computer as part of my website and all sorts of things like that. And it's very clever. 
But when I first started out, I, what I did was that I had a loose leaf file and every time I made a print, I put the title and the size. Uh, and I have a feeling I stapled a picture a photo of mm-hmm. the thing to to that piece of paper. And then I just listed all the prints, gave mm-hmm. each one a line. And as soon as I mounted or framed anything, then I created a little postcard that went in one. I can't even remember what they're called. This is so old school. Um, little box with cards in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, the sort of thing. And so that each print that was actually had a life had a, a card accounting for it. sounds it. spooky, like your librarian skills. Well, yeah, back totally. Yeah. I am totally <laughs> referencing that one one year of librarianship training in Aberystwyth. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, even then I was keeping a track of it. And it, it is important for Derek if he's got prints because people if somebody comes to you and says oh I really love that print where is it can Mm. I have one and you don't know if you've got it or a gallery's got it or it's down the pub or Mm -hmm. wherever you you need to be able to find it so record keeping as a printmaker matters maybe more than a little yeah I think if you're producing a lot of stuff as well, I think yeah, if you're producing, yeah, if you're producing mm-hmm. the odd piece here or there, and you can sort of be a bit more, you know, aware of your output, that's fine. But if you're prolific in what you do, I think it you, it does help to be a little bit organised. And I do know a few artists who are not that organised, and they actually can't remember which gallery has what. That's what I was just about to ask you, because even if it's an original painting, it, yeah. it potentially travels and has a life of its own. Yeah, and if you have no record then how do you know you just where it give, is? You're you giving know? your stock away, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So it does sort of pay exactly. to be aware of. The other thing I like to do is, you know, always have done. And when I originally started, I had a, it was a, uh, a notebook. It was sort of a spiral bound notebook, A4. I had a Monet print on the front of it. <laughs> Relates to a previous episode, everybody. And, um, and I would open it up and I would handwrite the commissions and the paintings yeah. that I sold. And I still have that. And it's really lovely to kind of look back through that. And when I started you know, doing it on word processing, just to see the output, you know, obviously I'm producing a lot more. It's interesting to look at the frequency of sales and pricing. I find that quite interesting and fascinating to sort of see the, the kind of the archive of my own work and kind of the, the kind of the historical context, I suppose, of what I'm doing. Um, I find that kind of fascinating. And this sort of harks back a little bit to an episode we talked about legacy as well, that I'm partly doing it from, for my sake, but who knows, it might be incredibly useful for someone, you know, well into the future as well about having a record of what I've produced. So I partly do it for that reason as well. Mm as well as being a little bit organised and trying to remember which painting is in which gallery at any point. But that's actually the other thing that I've just thought of when you were saying that is is it's useful if you send work out to be able to see if a gallery's had work before um, and so that you're not sending them something that you've already sent them mm. or they may say, oh, I had a painting for you, from you or I had a print from you and I want more of that. Yes. And you're thinking, and you don't know which one. <laughs> and they're sort of like, it's the blue one yeah. with that that little boy in it. And you're thinking, mm. what does that mean? So yeah, yeah it, it is important. So I would say that tedious though it can be, it's worth having a record. But Absolutely. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. It's perfectly right to do it in the back of an old exercise book. Well, thank you, Derek. Thank you, everyone else, for your questions. And Laura, go on. What's our takeaway? Our takeaway is easy, of course, for this <laughs> one. Takeaway is a really easy one. As always, we love to hear from you and we welcome your questions. So you can reach out to us through social media or at our website at askanartistpodcast.com. So keep those questions coming in and we will keep trying to answer them for you. 
Thank you, Laura, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, you can catch up with the stuff we've covered during this episode and all our previous episodes in our show notes at askanartistpodcast.com. And in the meantime, please do help us by subscribing to the show as it keeps us relevant and keeps us helping you. 